the leading people part of it, the ability to find solutions, the ability to work with the diversity of different people. That is a significant part of being a successful chief engineer, and it's, it's really just as important as being able to talk in the language of chief engineers and understanding life cycle reviews and, and so forth. Welcome back to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast where we tap into project experiences to share best practices, lessons learned, and novel ideas. I'm Tina Nunley. We're continuing our series on engineering best practices, taking a closer look at how excellence in engineering helps drive mission success. Our guest today is NASA Aeronautics Research Mission Director at Chief Engineer, Steve Hershorn. Steve, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. What are the key ingredients of being a chief engineer at NASA? So uh, a few years ago, um, I authored a book that was basically about how to be a chief engineer at NASA. The book is published by NASA. It's available free as, as a download. And so if you search on the title, which is Three Sigma Leadership, um, you'll come up with, with a web page where you could download uh, an EPUB version of the book or something that you could use on an e-reader, that sort of thing. It's publicly available and, and free to anybody uh, inside NASA or outside of NASA. Um, when I wrote that book, I organized it by 24 different skills and, and traits. But after I put those down, I, I recognized that all 24 of those largely falls under three different categories. And, and the first category is the obvious one is technical acumen. You know, it's being able to speak the language, the technical language. It's understanding the vernacular of margins and dispersions and knockdown factors and, and all the things that, that, that we do during the design and, and operations process. A second part of that is, is really managing yourself, and that is continuous learning uh, and just the ways in which we, we present ourselves. But a very significant portion of the book is about, is about leading others and is about people skills. And those sorts of things many times don't come intuitively to you know, those of us who are chief engineers that just want to stay purely in the technical. But the leading people aspects of this, which includes team building and negotiating and, and even having and uh, utilizing emotional intelligence, to me is just as critical in the roles of being a chief engineer um, because we, we do have to understand the technical landscape, but we also have to be able to lead people. So being a chief engineer is a combination uh, of all those things. Um, and I won't uh, wage a guess on proportions, but I would offer that the leading people part of it, the ability to find solutions, the ability to work with the diversity of different people, people from different centers, different uh, national cultures, different perspectives and different backgrounds and so forth, that aspect of leading people, which can be ineffable, it's, it's very difficult to define. But for me, anyway, I found that that is a significant part of being a successful chief engineer, and it's, it's really just as important as being able to, to 
talking the language of chief engineers and understanding life cycle reviews and, and so forth. When you think about leadership skills in general, what's different or unique about engineering leadership? Well, so one unique characteristic, I think, of engineering leadership is uh, in the realm of being a technical authority. So tech authority was created uh, and was inserted in the agency governance coming out of the Columbia accident, space shuttle Columbia accident back in 2003. And tech authority was inserted into agency governance about two years after that. Tech authority is, the the way it's characterized is a healthy tension, check and balance between the programmatic authority, and that's all the people that run programs and projects and have to be concerned with budgets and schedules and so forth. The programmatic authority and the institutional authority, which also includes our centers and our workforce and our facilities. Tech authority was that kind of third leg of the stool. And it was there to ensure technical excellence in the work that we do as an agency, but also ensure that we're aligning with technical processes and expectations. Um, It's very easy when a project manager is encumbered by budgets, uh, by by cost overruns, let's say, or schedule constraints or, or what have you, uh, to take a path that is, let's say, more expeditious to completing a system. Tech authority is there to ensure that the appropriate amount of thought and, and oversight is given to make sure that the project is ending up at an acceptable level of risk uh, for mission success, which is really what it's about. It's, it's about making sure that everybody is uh, on the same page in terms of the amount of risk that the project is taking. Um, Project managers can be uh, sometimes focused on the cost risk or the schedule risk. Tech authority is there in part to ensure that technical risk um, and on the safety and mission insurance side, that obviously includes safety and quality insurance, that technical risk and finding that right level of acceptability is is part of the equation. Um, many other leadership models out there in business and in industry and in sports and and other things uh, don't include that unique aspect of tech authority that I think sets engineering leadership aside. What do you see as the challenges and rewards of being a chief engineer? Well, so the first thing that I would offer is just the reward that you get from a successful mission. And I, I, I put it in, in the context of the, the very first position that I had here at NASA, which will probably be one of the best, my favorite positions, was uh, a flight controller in uh, mission control in Houston, working space shuttle flights. So for about 11 years, I supported 55 space shuttle missions, uh, all the way through the planning and training process, the preparation process. But then you get on console uh, during a pre-launch shift, and you can work through the launch. You can work through the duration of the mission on orbit. 
and you can work it all the way to what what colloquially we we, we call wheel stop. So the vehicle is has returned back to Earth uh, and is standing there on the runway, and the mission is is over. There is this very special feel that I got at the end of each mission at wheel stop because you work for months and months. You train incessantly. And then there's the drama uh, of the mission during launch and during all the operations on orbit and and on entry, Uh, the drama of danger, uh, but the drama of making sure that you're doing everything to, you know, succeed. In, in the mission, you have a, a successful mission. What, one of the greatest rewards that I'll ever have, I think, is when you come to the end of the mission and you've been successful. And so for, for me, I characterize it in terms of the space shuttle, but it's just as applicable for folks that have been working on a spacecraft under development and you've been putting every day in your blood, sweat, and tears for five years or 10 years into it, and it launches and it fulfills a mission requirement, and it's successful in terms of its mission, there's this incalculable feeling that, that you get from, uh, from, from that. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, I think, is, is a great recent example that all the work and millions of, of person hours that went into making sure that all the deployment mechanisms occurred uh, correctly and so forth, and we launched, and they did. And all those million hours of work really, really paid off. There's, there's a very uh, tangible feeling that you could get from, uh, from, uh, from that. Um, challenges, I think that you mentioned rewards and challenges. We're, we're, right now, we're dealing with a time frame that is good and bad from the standpoint that uh, the agency budget has increased pretty significantly over just the last five years, which means that we have more missions that we want to accomplish. From a, an engineering uh, standpoint, however, our engineering workforce um, you know, has been reasonably flat. So we have more things to do, more responsibilities, more projects to cover with the same workforce. I think that is going to be a challenge of how to navigate between those those pressures and you know a growing amount of tasks for the uh, for the engineering workforce. But it, it, it is an issue that is being discussed across all the centers and the engineering leadership about how do we handle basically more things on our plate when we have the same number of people. What are your thoughts on the importance of lessons learned in sharing engineering knowledge? So um, I, I've spent, let's see, 32 years in the agency and counting. I'm, I'm, I'm not done yet, but you know, I got 32 years of runway behind me. Well, one of the things that I've always valued is the knowledge captured by those who have been here before. And I actually have lamented that it's common for folks to be very, very deeply embedded in a project that working towards. And when the project comes to an end, they're very quickly ready to move on to the next project. And that I, I feel as an agency, we, we don't always capture that experience that um, can only benefit 
you know, future generations. Um, so I worked on the space shuttle and we spent 30 years of operations in a space shuttle. Some of that operational experience is captured uh, in documentation and it, it works its way in, into policies. But an awful lot of that operational experience left when people retired or moved on or in, in the case of contractors were, uh, were laid off. Um, there is huge amounts of operational spaceflight experience, including processing of the vehicles, that we learned through probably two generations of engineers. And some of it, a small portion was captured, but an awful lot of it left with, with the people. Um, we spent 10 years constructing uh, the International Space Station on orbit uh, that had over 100 spacewalks. There are lifetimes of experience, not just from those that perform the spacewalks, the astronauts who perform the spacewalks, but all the thousands of engineers and planners that planned those spacewalks, that worked issues real time, that did all these things that over the course of a hundred forays, you know, into the vacuum of space, after 10 years, we, we had an operational space station. Um, that, I think, has always been an opportunity for the agency to capture that experience somehow. The challenge in doing that is, as I mentioned, knowledge capture and things like that uh, sometimes are considered over and above what you need for mission success. So you, you keep your head down and you develop your system, you launch it, you operate it, and at the end, you know, you're successful. I always feel that somehow capturing the knowledge that we gained and in, in the context of being able to apply that to future generations that don't have to live through the same mistakes, let's say, that, that we made, um, that, that type of stuff is gold. You know, it's incalculable, the benefit that we could get from that as, as an agency. It, it's difficult to do, but, you know, folks need to set aside a bit of time to be able to do that. Some of that information we have carried through the generations by documenting in policy and process. But I've always felt, again, that there are just lifetimes of experience that transcend just simple shall statements in a policy that are of tremendous benefit for folks coming down the pike, for new engineers that are just joining the agency. And and the benefit that we could get from being able to figure out a way to pass that on is, is, is just incalculable. When people don't share information, what are the potential consequences for the organization? Well, so I, I think the simple answer to that is that there is a risk that you could repeat the same mistakes that people have made in, in the past. And so we, we always, as engineers, we always talk about scars and scar tissue of, of things that we've learned of uh, missions that didn't go the way that we wanted it to or design processes and, and choices that we made that didn't, you know, pay off or, or work out. Those are the, the scars and the scar tissue that, that we, we carry throughout our career. Once you have that scar tissue, it's very unlikely that you'll make the same mistake again. Uh, you, you learn from those experiences. And so 
the typical process is a new engineer comes in, joins the agency, and builds their own scar tissues and makes those mistakes, or as part of missions in which you know in which mistakes are are made. Um, it, the ideal to this is being able to carry that information forward to provide that knowledge capture such that future engineers and future project managers and and so forth can avoid having to go down those paths before they can benefit from mistakes that have been made in the past. Uh, To some extent, we try to do that with documenting uh, some of this in policies and practices. Uh, Some of our centers have extremely good and rigorous engineering best practices, golden rules, and, and so forth. But I think we as individuals collectively carry this lifetime of experience, and there is a lot that formulates our, our wisdom as, as we accumulate this that doesn't get documented. Um, by the way, knowledge capture doesn't have to be pure just documentation. It could be in the form of mentoring. It could be in the form of doing things like this podcast. Uh, there are many, many ways to, to convey information, to convey lessons learned. And, and experience and, and wisdom, hopefully. Um, it only, in my mind, can benefit us as an agency to avail ourselves of the opportunity to find ways to continue to perpetuate that, that wisdom such that we can be even more successful in the future. And passing this information along, you talked about mistakes that people have made and how important it is to share information. What if people just don't speak up because of a mistake or a failure? What impact does that have? So in late January, we, as an agency, commemorated what we call a day of remembrance, which uh, acknowledges the loss that we have sustained as an agency uh, three different times with the loss of of astronaut crews. And and those three events, by the way, were Apollo 1 fire in 1967, the Challenger space shuttle uh, in 1986, and and, uh, the Space Shuttle Columbia breaking up on entry in 2003. It was pointed out that if you count the time duration between Apollo 1 and Challenger was 19 years. If you look at the duration between Challenger and Columbia, it was 17 years. And right now in 2022, we we are sitting on right about 19 years since Columbia. Um, And so in some contexts, you could say we're ripe to repeat those sorts of mistakes that that we've made in in the past. I lived through Columbia. I was deeply involved in the accident investigation and and return to flight activities. I know every single person that was on console uh, in mission control uh, during uh, Columbia STS-107 entry. Um, I know them personally. Um, that, That event for me, as I expect it was for the people that, the NASA employees that lived through Challenger and Apollo 1, was uh, emotionally traumatic. Uh, you don't forget when you experience something like that, and, and it stays with you for, for the rest of your life. Um, but, you know, there will come a day when I retire, and there will come a day when 
many of the folks that are still part of the agency that, that lived through the Columbia mishap will retire and move on. Uh, same thing happened with Apollo 1, and same thing happened with, with Challenger. It's almost a generational sort of thing. So th there are elements of organizational silence in all three of those events. Um, they were not the root cause. I mean, you could track the hardware-related root causes in, in all three of those those accidents um, to very specific things. And, and, you know, there's no commonality amongst those. The commonality across all three tends to be in the organizational shortcomings that we had. Uh, the, the, the term that has become common is normalization of deviance to where you get very, very used to an out-of-certification condition as being normal just because it's happened a bunch of times before. There were instances of organizational silence in each of those three events where people had recognized that we were probably tripping the boundary of acceptable risk, but we were still continuing to press on but there were forces within the organization that prevented people from being able to speak up, from feeling free uh, to speak up, from having the, the, the latitude and the liberty to raise and elevate these concerns. All that sounds really, really bad. But I will say that, you know, I, I look for the ability of us as an agency to learn. And I think where we are now in 2022. Uh, and, and part of it is a hope, but I really do think that there's evidence out there that we have finally learned as an agency um, some, is, some of these lessons and, and how things like organizational silence can be you know, cancerous to us as an agency. Um, just in the last few years, I've seen evidence on things like uh, mandatory training in organizational silence, mandatory training that everybody, as far as I know, across the agency has to take, you know, Saturn courses um, on those three events. And not just the hardware related root causes, but the organizational root causes as well. The, the, the key to not making mistakes in, in that vein are to keep the not just the memory of the the astronauts who perished, but the the memories of or, or the the realization of the impacts of some of these behaviors. Keep it alive and fresh. Um, you can't count on that being instilled in our culture uh, simply because people live through it. Because eventually, folks retire and, and they move on. I, I do feel like we are trying to inculcate into our NASA culture. Those things that, that in part led us down the path of Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia and instill that institutionally such that folks that are coming out of college right now, they realize the importance of how organizational silence can be uh, poisonous to the agency. And they don't have to live through it themselves and carry those emotional scars in order to understand the importance to the agency. So I actually think that we're in a good place by maintaining that as part of our corporate identity, our, our corporate knowledge. Um, and, and the thing that we have to be careful about is maintaining the vigilance to maintain, to keep it there. So, 
you know, when I retire and when agency leadership that is instilling this right now for mandatory training, when they move on, um, that future generations of NASA leadership still feel that this is an important thing to maintain as part of our culture. Um, and that instill that vigilance to make sure that, that we do. So I think we're, we're in a good place where we're keeping that fresh in our engineers and our managers, our technicians' minds. We, we, we just have to make sure that it stays there. Steve, how has engineering changed during your career, especially, say, over the last 10 years? Well, um, th- there are two things that stand out in my mind. Probably if I thought about it, there would be, be more. <laughs> but there are two things that, that I think stand out in, in my mind, um, first off. One, one thing is the utilization of model-based systems engineering. The use of MBSE in our design processes throughout all of our design development, test, and evaluation is becoming or, or probably has become uh, a standard and is commonplace in industry, uh, more so than, than it has within uh, NASA processes. I see MBSC, I see pockets of MBSC, and there certainly is a rich amount of pathfinding going on within the agency to help us figure out what works and what doesn't work and, and so forth. But that ability to model our processes, that ability to um, to create these digital models, for lack of a better word, of the systems that we're developing and utilize that to assess the impacts of changes, uh, the impacts um, and you know potential hazards that we hadn't recognized before when we do make changes and, and things like that. Um, Ten years ago, that was not part of our normal processes at, at all. Today, it is becoming more and more standard. Again, in my experience, I think industry is out ahead of us in, in this case, but we are uh, working and striving for more digital transformation within the agency. Um, it still is uncomfortable, I think, to many because it's not standard, because it's not you know the old school way of doing things. But... Um, yeah, I didn't see that 10 years ago to the extent that, that, that I'm seeing it now. The other thing is a more difficult area to really quantify, but I think it is changing the way that we're doing engineering to some extent, or at least the way that we oversee our engineering uh, developments. And that's, you know, in the last 10 years, we've seen a lot more projects go down the path of public-private partnerships. Uh, to where NASA is not procuring a system that we develop, but is procuring a service. So, so the the obvious example to that is commercial crews. So we're paying you know SpaceX and Boeing to uh, to uh, to carry astronauts to transport astronauts to and from the International Space Station. NASA does not own those systems. We don't own those spacecraft. Our industry partners maintain ownership uh, of those spacecraft. And so the typical NASA model to where we could apply and mandate our engineering standards, our engineering processes, and, and our project management standards and processes and, and well, that that's changing to where before we maintain very, very close insight and oversight of what the contractors are doing now. 
our relationship, our engineering relationship tends to be more collaborative than just pure insight and, and oversight. Um, and I think we found models that, that work fairly well on commercial crew. I think we're, we're still learning the ins and outs of, of how to do that well. But, but, but we're learning, and I think we've been reasonably successful. Um, the human landing system, uh, HLS project in, in human spaceflight to, uh, to uh, carry astronauts to the surface of the moon and back is going to be done under the same model. And, uh, and, and that model is also being translated to areas of, uh, of NASA aeronautics uh, in some of our X-plane developments as, as well. That, that relationship and that role of moving from pure oversight and insight to a collaboration with industry partners where we never get handed the keys to the car, that certainly wasn't there 10 years ago. And uh, I, I think we made a lot of progress in figuring out how to do that effectively, but we're, we're probably still learning on that account. What changes do you think we may see over the next 10 years? Well, going back to the MBSC, so MBSC, model-based systems engineering, is one example of, of how technology is affecting our design processes. Um, I have a feeling, and it's largely a feeling, it might be a slightly educated feeling, but, I, but it's still a feeling, that our very design processes are going to be changing over the next 10, 20 years as computer technologies uh, get more and more uh, advanced and, and, and capable. Um, technology matures and computer technologies continue to advance. And what capabilities they will have 10 years from now, we probably can't even dream of. My guess is that our engineering design processes and practices will continue to evolve. Um, there is a transition from the very 20th century way of doing design drawings via, via uh, vellum and paper drawings and, and so on and so forth to um, computer-aided design. And that happened in the, in the 80s and the 90s, and, and that was a large, very, very large trans, transition in our design processes because you know, computer technology was advancing. I have a feeling that that advancement is going to continue and it's going to be and it's going to manifest in ways that we probably can't even predict today. Um, I do think that, again, in the in the public-private partnership, that is going to be more and more common and, and not just in terms of what NASA does, but I think that we're going to have to get comfortable uh, in an environment where there are lots of other people doing what we do. You know, I hired in 1990, and at that point, I worked with a whole swath of Apollo veterans that were, that were just retiring from the agency. Well, even in the 1990s, there are very few entities on the surface of the planet that were sending astronauts into space. Um, today, it's becoming more and more common. And I think SpaceX had announced about uh, private missions to very, very high orbits, you know, 800 kilometer high orbits, well above low Earth orbit, and actually doing things like spacewalks. Um, there will be a transition, I think, between being the only people on the planet that, that can do something to be one of many 
people on the planet that that can do something. And what that means for NASA, though, is that we'll probably at some point hand off the responsibility of doing things that industry and and private entities are now doing for themselves so that we can move on to the next area that nobody has done before. And so that, I think, is largely going to manifest in permanent uh, habitations on the moon and interplanetary travel. Uh, the, the most common destination is Mars right now, but eventually, hopefully not too much longer, going, you know, sending people out to the outer solar system and, and asteroids and so on and so forth. I, I, I definitely feel that there's a role for the agency to play in that. I don't think that private industry is going to be that invested because um, it's just it's just far too expensive and far too risky. But again, that, that transition is going to have an effect, I think, on engineering. But, you know, it's a challenge, but it's a good challenge to have. It's the sort of thing that I think most people join NASA to be able to do, to do things that other people aren't doing that are too complex or too risky but to do it well and to do it methodically and to do it safely and successfully. So I would expect in the next 10 years that there will continue to be some evolution of the sorts of missions, particularly in human spaceflight, but, but it's not limited to human spaceflight at all that NASA does. And our engineering practices will continue to evolve to meet those challenges of systems that will be far more complex than we can even conceive today. Many thanks to Steve for sharing his insights and experiences. You can download a free copy of Steve's NASA-published book, Three Sigma Leadership, or The Way of the Chief Engineer, via a link on our website at apple.nasa.gov podcast. Links to related Apple courses, Steve's bio, and a show transcript are also available. Up next in the Engineering Best Practices series is a conversation with Space Launch System Chief Engineer John Blevins. And that episode is set for release March 23rd. Do you have ideas for future guests and topics? It would be fantastic if you'd let us know on Twitter at NASA Apple. That's A-P-P-E-L. And use the hashtag, small steps, giant leaps. As always, thanks for listening.